0: Talk to you about the fact that God is a responsive God. Uh, I was so so tempted to jump into our series here with uh, you know with the North Campus, but these other guys you know down in Carmel Valley they they kind of been trekking the journey for about six years. So so I just thought oh, I'm just going to keep laying just a foundation up here so that you can kind of buy in and really capture who we are. And so uh, I want you to come with me to the, f- the book of First Samuel. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament, after the book of Ruth is 1 Samuel, then there's 2 Samuel, 1 uh, Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, but we're going to be in 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel, it's page 248, if you've stolen the Gideon's Bible from a hotel. 1 Samuel, how many people are excited about the Word of God? <laughs> Praise God. 1 Samuel, verse 1 of chapter 1 says, Now there was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, who invented Tofu, the son of Zoph and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. Greedy. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. You might just want to underline, the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6, and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that her rival provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? It's just amazing the male ego. The male ego is here, and reality is kind of, kind of you know, way off over here. Why are, you, why are you crying? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Check out those guns. Oh, yeah. Can ten sons do that? I don't think so. Yeah, like he's just... The poor woman. She's Anyway. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, Lord... O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant, remember me and forget not your maidservant, but will give her a male child. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart. Everyone say heart. She spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman. For out of the abundance of my complaint, everyone say complaint. Out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petitions which you have asked for. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they go back uh, in verse 19 and 20 in verse 20 says so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel saying because I asked him from the Lord. Let's just pray. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. Father, I ask that you speak through your servant. Father, let this again be fresh man a fresh revelation for these your beautiful children, your beautiful servants in Jesus' mighty name everybody said. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Probably one of the most amazing topics that I discovered as I I, uh, began to walk with the Lord is the fact that God is a responsive God. God is a responsive God. I'm I'm, uh, a little bit behind Pastor Mark. Pastor Mark's got a brand new book out, my friend, the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you to get it out there in the foyer. Phenomenal book. I'm writing a book called Push, uh, Accessing the Will of God for Your Life. And uh, because most people think that the will of God is either unknowable or it's automatic. Can I tell you, it's neither of those. God's will is absolutely wonderfully and perfectly knowable. And, and tragically, it's not automatic. The will of God in your life requires activation. And so, so you need to understand that God is a responsive God. So let me just kind of help you. Uh, the Bible says, if you will draw near to me, then I will draw near to you. You will find that all the way through the Bible, wherever there is a promise of God, it is preceded with a premise. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways and pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. So there was a promise of healing. There's a promise of, of hearing and healing from heaven on the premise that they humble themselves, turn from their ways and seek the Lord in prayer. So you find that all the way through the Bible, there is promise, but it is preceded by a premise. Are you with me? Then I want you to understand that, that God is a God who responds. Draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Give, and it will be given to you. Press down, shaken together, running over, Luke 6.38. Luke 6.37 says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So, so God is saying, you move, and then I move. But we don't want that. We, God, you move, and then I'll move. And God's like, no, uh, you move, I move. I will go, you move first. I'll give if you give me first. And God's like, no, no, you give what you've got, and then I'll do the miracle. We're like, no, it doesn't work like that, God, because if I give what, you know, I won't have enough for, I can't really. And God's like, well, you don't trust me? You don't trust? You think if you give that somehow I can't? Elijah comes to a woman of Zarephath who's got enough meal and enough uh, oil for one last cake. Then her and her son are going to eat it in the midst of a famine and die. And Elijah comes and says, "Yeah, go and bake your cake like you said, woman. But bake me a small piece of it first For thus says the Lord: If you put me first, and so she comes and she brings to him first, and the flour and the oil doesn't doesn't run out all the way through the famine. God does a miracle of why? Because God responds. I need you to understand that, that God responds, like when you when you read through the Bible, you'll find that uh, the Bible says Jesus is walking on water, and the disciples are straining at the oars, and the Bible says, and Jesus would have passed them by, except they cried out. Because they cried out, Peter gets to walk on water, but Jesus was walking to the other side of the lake, letting them, if they didn't cry out, Jesus would have kept going. But blind Bartimaeus was a blind beggar sitting on the outskirts of Jericho, and when he heard that it was Jesus, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus has not responded. Jesus is still walking. The crowd is trying to silence him, but he rises above the crowd and screams even louder Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. And, and says, what do you want me to do for you? Had blind Bartimaeus not cried out, Jesus would not have stopped. Jesus stopped in response to blind Bartimaeus' passion, and blind Bartimaeus that day was no longer blind. He got healed. I know this is very uncomfortable teaching, because we want to kind of live in a fatalistic worldview that somehow the sovereignty of God is the same as fate, that if it's meant to happen, it's meant to happen. Que sera, sera whatever will be. We we prefer to live like that because then we don't have any responsibility. But can I tell you, unfortunately, you're in C3 church tonight, and you're going to understand that not only have you been given authority, you cannot have authority unless there's also responsibility. And that responsibility is the fact that God is a responsive God. You know, John Wesley said, God does nothing except in response to prayer. You need some help still. Okay, all right. Uh, Jesus is on his way. Uh, to heal Jairus' daughter. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, and he says he comes to Jesus, listen, my 12-year-old daughter lies at death's door. She is unbelievably sick. Would you come and heal her? Jesus says, I'll come. So Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, and a huge crowd is with him. They're all ready to see a miracle. Oh my God, she's going to do a miracle. And the Bible says there is a woman at the same time who is anemic. She has been bleeding nonstop for 12 years. Nothing that she has done, nothing that the the doctors, the medical experts have been able to do, has been able to stop this constant outflow, this constant hemorrhaging of blood from her body. She is weak. She is pale. She is anemic. But the Bible says when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd. And the Bible says she said to herself, if only I may touch the hem of Jesus's garment, I shall be healed. And she comes in, in through the crowd and the crowd, the Bible says was, Thronging Jesus, everyone's around the disciples, the dirty dozen. They're around Jesus, trying to create like a barrier, trying to create a wall of defense, a human wall. They're his, they're his posse, they're his security guard. They're around him, keeping people at bay. To get the hem of his garment, she must have actually gone down and grovelled on the ground, hands and knees, and reached out. And Jesus felt a tug, and he and and he stops and he says, "Who touched me?" And Peter's like, "What are you talking about?" And Jesus says, who touched me? Everyone's touching. Will you get and, and everyone's touching. And Jesus says, no, no, no. People are thronging. But somebody touched me. Listen to what the Bible says. For I felt power leave my body. Who touched me? Jesus actually didn't know who touched him. At the moment that she touched, Jesus, Jesus was on his way to heal somebody else. The woman realizing she would not go undiscovered because Jesus would figure it out, whether it was a word of knowledge or revelation or just discernment, he would know which one it was. But at the particular moment when power left him in the midst of the crowd, in the midst of his focusing on a 12-year-old daughter being healed, Jesus said, who touched me? Somebody touched me. for a The woman comes trembling, falling down before him and says, this is what happened. When I touched you, power came into my body and instantly... The fountain of my hemorrhaging dried up. And Jesus said, daughter, great is your faith. Your faith has made you whole. In other words, this woman stole a healing. Jesus was going to heal somebody else, but she took a healing. Just because it wasn't Jesus' intention to heal her, doesn't mean it wasn't his will to heal her. God is a responsive God. God responds to faith. I said God responds to faith. You'll find all the way through the Bible, God responds to faith. So I I love this story because, again, it highlights the fact that God is a responsive God. Here is a woman called Hannah. Hannah is barren. Hannah is the first wife of Elkanah. Uh, Elkanah marries Hannah. He loves Hannah. She's listed as his first wife in the story, but unfortunately, she is barren. The Bible says that the Lord had closed her womb. So Elkanah knows that uh, his future, his retirement, his his old age care, his his livelihood is dependent upon him being able to have children. So he reluctantly marries another woman. He marries Peninnah and purely so that she can have children. She has children. She has children. He goes into her. She conceives and she has children. Peninnah has Elkanah's children. She conceives his seed, conceives his offspring. But she notices that when she looks in her husband's eye, his eye looks Past her, there's a there's a glaze over his gaze towards her because his first love is not Penina, it's Hannah. Penina sees this. She sees that even though she is securing his future, giving him sons, giving him daughters, providing livelihood and family in the home, she sees that that's not enough that he loves his first love, Hannah, so she begins to torment Hannah. She begins to provoke her rival. She makes sure that Hannah feels like a failure. She makes sure that Hannah feels incomplete. Hannah feels incomplete. They go up to the, the feast, and the Bible says that, you know, Elkanah, who's just a wonderful man, gives to each of his, of his ch- uh, uh, children a, a portion to give to the Lord, an offering. He's teaching them about honoring the Lord. He's teaching them to bring an offering. Don't go into the house of God empty-handed. Go into the house of God with an offering in your hand. But to Hannah, he gives a double portion to make a statement, sweetheart, even though you don't have children, I want you to know that, darling, you you know you, you are my first love. You are my, you are my bride. You are my wife. Hannah doesn't care about the the double portion. She, She wants to feel complete. The Bible says the Lord had closed her womb. Then it says in the next verse, and her rival provoked her severely, causing her to weep bitterly because the Lord had closed her womb. If I was to take that passage of Scripture to any modern day theologian, the theologian would deduce purely from that passage of Scripture that it must not be God's will for Hannah to have children. Most theologians would say something along the lines of, well, you know, we don't understand the ways of the Lord. Indeed, they are mysterious, the ways of the Lord. God moves in mysterious ways. And, you know, though in this life we may not understand why the Lord has closed her womb in the next life, all will be explained. Once we get to heaven, we will realize perhaps it's God's will for Hannah to adopt a young Ethiopian child. After all, there are many Ethiopian children suffering all kinds of famine. Pestilence, or perhaps, you know, in China where they have high abortion because there's only one child per family. Maybe it's the Lord's will that Hannah adopt a little Chinese baby to save it from and 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 and, and you could leave the count, oh yeah, that makes makes sense. That, that makes sense. Except that's not how this story plays out. That's not how this script plays out. The Lord closes her womb. Most people, most people would leave it at that. Well, you know what? <laughs> who am I? Who am I? If God has in his wisdom chosen to close the womb, why, who, what? But I like this girl. Because she kind of comes to a place where she says, you know what? If he closes my womb, he can open it back up. How many people know if 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 he can close the jar, if he can shut the door, he can also open the door. Come on, somebody. So so can I tell you point number one? And this is a breakthrough message tonight. There are people here and you're living with you're living with stuff, and you're putting up with stuff and you're tolerating stuff that God wants to see whether you will break through, whether whether you, whether you will just accept that maybe this is my reality, this is my ceiling, this is all, this is as good as life. I remember years ago watching a movie with my wife, Jack Nicholson was in it, uh, as good as it gets. What if this is as good as it gets? Hey, why don't we just settle for a mediocre eking our life out existence? Can I tell you, that is not the life for a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is not the life that I discover when you are filled with the power, the Bible says Romans 8 11, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives on the inside of you and let me just open this story up in the last few moments we have together and show you something point number one do not accept the unacceptable the Lord had closed her womb but to Hannah this was unacceptable God if God closes it he can open it up again can I just tell you too many people have deduced or believe that you know maybe this is God's will maybe God is wanting me to suffer maybe God is teaching me s- through sufferings and absolutely can you learn something when suffering absolutely you know but you can learn something not suffering you can learn something you know in a in a in a on a beautiful beach lying in a hammock you can learn wow hammocks are comfortable things there are there are lots of things that you can learn you don't have to suffer to learn come on somebody and so so the first thing I would say to you do not accept the unacceptable the Bible says in uh, in Isaiah 59 19. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. There are times of pressure. There are times of difficulty that you and I face. And there are times the enemy will come in and seemingly overwhelm you like a flood. But can I just tell you, look to God because the Holy Spirit will lift up a standard against him and that's a time to rise. That is not a time to shrink back into self-pity, into a pity party, into a woe is me. That is a time to rise to a new level of prayer, to a new level of fasting, and say, you know what, this is unacceptable. Maybe you've got a, a child that's hooked up on drugs, or you've got a spouse that's walked away from God, or, or you're facing, you know, divorce, or bankruptcy, or foreclosure, or you've had a business partner steal all the money, whatever you're facing. Can I just tell you, when the enemy comes in like a flood, look to the Lord, because he's lifting up a standard against the enemy. It is not a time to step back. It is a time to step up. Do not accept what is unacceptable. The Bible says that Hannah then is praying and Eli thinks, you know, put your weight away from your woman because she's praying with such fervency that, that Eli doesn't recognize it. Eli, by the way, if you read the story, is grossly overweight. He ends up falling off a seat and dying because he's the body weight and he snaps his neck. He's grossly overweight because he's lost. What got him to the position of a prophet, the disciplines the fastings, the prayers that cause the word of the Lord to be attracted to him. The word of the Lord no no, no longer comes to him. The word of the Lord goes to a little four-year-old boy called Samuel who can't even interpret the word of the Lord, can't even interpret the voice of God, is not even saved yet. And the word of the Lord comes to him because God is so bypassing uh, Eli because Eli has no more disciplines in his life. He's just gotten fat. He's just gotten overweight. He's just gotten lazy. And he can't even discern the fact that this woman is praying a breakthrough prayer. There is something, her lips are moving and there's a fervency and he's confused and thinks she's drunk. And she says, do not think your maidservant is a wicked woman for out of my complaint, I have brought my petition to the Lord. Can I just tell you, point number two is you either are living today with a complaint or you are living with complacency. You won't be living with both. You're either living with one or the other. Either you have a complaint or you've become complacent. Can I just tell you, that if to you everything is right, something's wrong. If you as a Christian, living in this messed up, jacked up generation, if to you everything is right, something's wrong. You and I actually should have a tweak in our spirit. You and I should actually live with a level of complaint. Because things ain't the way that it ought to be. When I read my Bible, I see that between what God's will and God's intent for mankind is, and where mankind is living, there's a huge difference. There's a huge drought. There's a huge gap. There's a huge chasm. And the, what stands in between is the church. And it's only the complaint of the church. If there's no complaint, you will find yourself complacent and sitting on your hands. Can I just tell you, when I got saved, it was fantastic. But God ruined me because I began to ask Him to give me His heart. When He gave me His heart, I couldn't see the world the same way anymore. I began to realize something is wrong with this world. God, if you can use anybody, I'm jacked up and I'm messed up. But if you want to use me, go right ahead. I may not be able to preach real good. I may not be able to speak real good. I may not have a whole lot of stuff going. But man, something's got to change here. And I find that God wants to put a complaint on the inside of you. The only way we're going to transform a young generation, the only way we're going to impact our high schools is if we have a complaint in our spirit that agitates us, that stirs us, that says we've got to reach this teenage generation. Do you know right now, heroin is the cheapest drug that teenagers can buy in high school. There's a new form of heroin called black tar heroin, and it is is cheaper than marijuana. And it is manufactured across the border by the cartels. And they've actually put a multi-level marketing plan together to distribute it. So they actually find kids to distribute it. And as they distribute it, well, they get free drugs themselves. And as they enlist people, they go up a a pyramid thing because they they, they want to infiltrate. They, they, They don't care about the students. They don't care that anybody that gets on black tar heroin lives for about two years. They don't care that it destroys their lives. All they care about is the fact that they get people hooked and and make money. Something is wrong with a teenage generation. Then listen, the reason our teenagers today are reaching out to drugs is not because they're evil people. People don't reach out for drugs because they're evil. People reach out to drugs because they're hurting. They're hurting. When you have 48% of marriages that end in divorce... Divorce hurts children. Divorce hurts children. There are kids going to school that feel unloved by mum or dad. We have kids that grow up without a mum or dad in the home. They have all kinds of rejection, all kinds of hurt, all kinds of pain. And when somebody comes up and offers them something that to their peers is kind of kind of out there and radical and kind of cool bravado macho but at the same time it heals their pain they take it and the church we sing our songs we have our hymns and we have our programs i am telling you that is not c3 church Our church is a church that wants to have a a, a complaint in our spirit because it is not all right. It is not all right with our schools. We are passionate until we're able to penetrate into the schools and preach the gospel that you you don't need drugs to heal that wound. You don't need drugs to heal that. Drugs may take away the pain for a moment. They may mask the pain, but they won't deal with the root issue. Only Jesus Christ can heal. Only Jesus Christ can touch that. There should be a level of complaint on the inside of you. You know, every great ministry is birthed out of a place of complaint. Every great ministry is birthed out of a place of complaint of something on the inside of you. The world is not right. I've got to do something for solo moms. I've got to do something for drug addicts. I've got to do something for women trapped in prostitution. You you drive up to the Dream Center, you ask Pastor Matthew Barnett, how did you get started? He'll find, man, it was a complaint. It was a complaint in my spirit. I just couldn't see it. I couldn't drive past it. I couldn't listen to it anymore without doing something. Can I just tell you, God wants you to live with a complaint. If there's no complaint, there's no breakthrough. Is there a level of complaint in your spirit? Moving really quickly, I, I know we've only got a few moments left. The thing I love about this girl is she doesn't look to man. She looks to God. She goes to the house of God. Can I tell you all your breakthroughs, every answer is in God. His eye is on the sparrow, the Bible teaches. The, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. She doesn't go to the, you know, the ABW, the Association of Barren Women. She doesn't become president of the Barren Women's Association. She goes to the house of God. Can I just tell you, it's amazing how many people would read that scripture, the Lord closed her womb and say, yeah, well, if he closed my womb, that's it. I'm out of church. I'm out of church. I'm going to go and I'm going to whine and complain about how, how cruel and how unfair God is and he closed my womb and why would you want to worship this God? He closed my womb. He, he, he's a mean, nasty God. He closes people's wombs and, and, and he just, nah. but I, I, I like this girl. Can I tell you, real worship is your ability to turn up to God when disappointment permeates your life. Real worship, real discipleship is where you turn up to church and there's pain in your heart you turn up to church and you don't understand why anybody can come to church when they've had breakthrough anybody can come to church when you know your six lottery numbers turned up and whoa, god is good Any, anybody can do that but when you come to church and you're burdened down with why why did this happen why did that happen And you come into the house of God and you still lift your hand. And even though you don't have the answers and you don't understand why God has allowed this, but you still worship, that's worship. That's devotion. And can I tell you, not only is it worship and devotion, but that's faith. You know what David said? David said, I would have lost heart or I would have despaired unless... I had believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. David believed that there was a better day coming. You know, God spoke to me so, so beautifully this week, you know, uh, just something in, in my own life. When David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I just love that. And I just felt God say, you know what? When David's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, That may not have been my path for him. My path may have been up here. David may have made a wrong turn. David may have made a dumb decision. He may have seen somebody else's wife. And and now he's walking in a valley. And the shadow of death hangs over him. But he says, I fear no evil for you with me. Because God is, is so committed to His ways, but you need to understand God is not a lawyer. He is a lover. and He is committed to you above His ways. That even when you stray from from His ways, He will not leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says, never will I leave you, nor forsake you. He didn't say, if you walk in my paths and my statutes, you'll find I'm there. He says, never will I leave you, nor forsake you. He's so loving. He's such an amazing God. Keep coming to the house of God in pain. Keep coming to the house of God in sorrow. Keep coming to the house of God in disappointment. Keep coming to the house of sorrow, to the house of God, when you have more wise than you have answers. She gave before she had. I love that. She gives before she has. Breakthrough. Point number five, she prayed like she was drunk. I think we need to have more people in church that can pray like they're drunk. Oh, (laughs) God is not a God of disorder, brother. Hallelujah. 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 found in my life, it's when I kind of stray from the script, when I stray from orderly prayers, when I pray and there's tears and there's sweat and there's desperation and there's a cry. The words may not be eloquent, not be, they may not be wonderfully rehearsed, but they seem to be the most potent in moving God. God wants to move in your life. Sometimes I think that we've got to get some some accusations flying. Man, at that church they pray like they're drunk. The birth of the church that happened. In Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they're all gathered together in one accord in one place. There came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind that divided as uh, tongues of fire and each one rested upon them and they began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled and there were staying at that time all kinds of Jews from Mesopotamia and Asia and Philia and uh, Cretans and Arabs and all kinds of people and when they heard them speaking and declaring the wonderful works of God in their own language, they said to them, hey, are these not Galileans? How is it we hear them speaking each in our own language, the wonderful words of God? And therefore they said, maybe they're drunk. And Peter had to stand up, say, hey, "Hey, hey, guys, guys! Whoa, we are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine a.m. in the morning. We are drunk, though. We are intoxicated on the Holy Ghost. I, I honestly believe that there's got there's got to be a level of where, where we kind of pray with with a, with a passion and a tenacity. I reckon." a good thing for you to get accused of being drunk. When I grew up, my uh, my family's best friends were, were the Stilps, the Stilp family. And I loved, I loved whenever Mr. Stilp, his name was Herbert Stilp, but Mr. Stilp to us as kids, I loved whenever he had his third or fourth beer, because we would hit him up for cash. I'm telling you, he would open his wallet. Oh yeah, here you go, Kinder. Here's twenty dollars. And mate, twenty. When I was a little kid, twenty dollars was like winning the lotto. Unbelievably generous. You know, drunk people are bold and have no fear. There was a kid in my class called his nickname was Robbo. He was the skinniest kind of little dweeb of a kid. I remember one day he he. Uh, he turned up at the, the school formal. Everyone always picked on him, made fun of him. But he'd stolen some of his dad's uh, spumanti champagne. And he just drank the whole bottle. And we, we were worried about Robert. Well, he goes in there and he finds the biggest guy and starts picking on the biggest guy and starts picking a fight with the biggest guy in the place. And we're, and we're having to drag Robert. And he's like, no, let me at him. And this guy's freaking out. I haven't done anything to him. I never said anything. Oh, I don't know what's wrong with him. And like, let me, let me go. I'm gonna fire kill you. Drunk people, bold, have no fear. That's why Paul says, be filled with the Holy Ghost. Don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 4, they preach the word with boldness. Drunk people get up. We were doing uh, we were doing street witnessing in, in Queen Street, Auckland, and it was pretty lame. What street witnessing was was you played a guitar, "This Little Light of Mine," I'm gonna let it shine as people walk past, looking at you, and then you just kind of yell at people, "Jesus is coming back." If you don't know, you're gonna burn in hell. I'm talking to you, yeah. And like that's well, this we're, just, we're, we're right outside a pub. And this, this kind of drunk guy kind of staggers out of the pub. He kind of just kind of looks and listens. And there's, there's, there's a four lane, uh, it's Queen Street, it's Main Street. It's got two lanes this way, two lanes going the other way. But well, he just kind of looks, doesn't look at the traffic and just kind of steps out onto the traffic. As he steps out on the traffic, there's a taxi hurtling along the road. Er, the guy slams his right hits this guy. The guy goes up onto the, onto the hood of the car, you know, rolls off and lands on the ground. I'm like, oh my gosh, the guy is dead. The taxi driver's freaked out. All of a sudden, the guy gets up. Walks over to the window and goes, gives him the double thumbs up and limps off. He limped off. He gets hit by a car, gets up, thumbs up, and limps off. We have people in church who can't get up after... No one talked to me when I came to church. I was on the choir roster and they forgot to call me. I'm leaving the church. Nobody smiled when I came in. They handed me a newsletter that had a folded crease in the corner, not a crisp one, a folded one. They treat you like secondhand citizens. Of that. This guy was hit by a car, gave the thumbs up, got up, and we need more Christians that can get up and forgive. i got a few things. Drunk people tell the truth. I love you, man. I've always loved you. I just never told you, man. I love you. We've only just met. (laughs) Drunk people aren't afraid to express their feelings. Drunk people lose their inhibitions. Drunk people have a go. I'll finish with a the silly story. Drunk people have a go. Paddy. Irish Paddy. He's at the pub and, and uh, the guy comes over and says, you know, Paddy, here, Paddy, it's uh, it's 12 o'clock, it's closing time, best you be leaving now. He says, I'm not leaving until you give me another point. He says, Paddy, it's closing time. I'm not pouring you another point, you've had nine he says, "I'm not having, and I'm not leaving until you give me another point." He says, "Paddy, it's midnight. We're closing down. You need to go home." He says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not leaving until you give me another point. Give me a point of your best lager." So, all right, Paddy, but you've got to promise me you'll drink it and you'll hurry home. I promise. So, you know, so you know, tenth beer. Paddy, you know. Finishes and puts it down. I'll be seeing you next week. All right, buddy. No, you, you go home safely. And Patty goes to get off the, the, the bar stool and falls, falls on the ground. I mean, it, it's embarrassing. He crawls on his hands and knees across the floor, pulls himself up on the front door of the church. I'm all right, I'm all right. Oh, oh the church, the pub, sorry. <laughs> <coughs> it's not Patty, it's Andy. But anyway, and so... <laughs> the names have been changed to protect the innocent so so he pulls himself up pulls himself up on the door of the pub opens the door goes to step outside flat on his face again crawls to the crawls to the, the you know the, the 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 gate pulls himself up onto the gate opens the gate steps out of the gate Onto the onto the pavement. Lucky he only lives a couple of houses down from from the uh, from the pub, and so he just kind of crawls, just drags himself, commando crawling all the way to his to his front fence, pulls himself up on the front fence, opens the gate, tries to straighten his you know clothing, and uh, has a look at his breath. or it's you know hopes his wife's asleep. Takes a step and falls flat on his face. Crawls up the stairs front door pulls himself up on the front door opens the front door falls in again it's just dreadful you know crawls up the stairs crawls into bed next morning his wife comes in he's i mean he's hung over his wife comes in she says paddy paddy oh don't pretend you're asleep paddy wake up paddy you were drinking last night weren't you oh no no paddy don't you lie to me you were drinking last night, weren't you? Well, I might have had a point or two. Paddy, don't you lie to me. You were as drunk as a skunk, weren't you, when you came home? Don't you lie. Tell me the truth, Paddy. You're as drunk as a skunk. He said, Well, I was probably a wee bit inebriated. Don't you tell me a wee bit. Paddy, you were drunk. He says, Aye, oh, Sheila. How'd you know? She says, Oh, the pub rang. You left your wheelchair there. On that note, every head bowed, every eye closed.